you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital DVD and Tubi. Yay! I'm Liz Manishal. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I do sales. And I'm also a distribution consultant who used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. On this Thursday bonus episode, we're going to play the interview from episode 259 with Polish director Malgorzata Sumoska, who came on the show to talk about the making of her first American-produced film, The Other Lamb, which way, this was like way back in the day when I actually watched all the movies or tried to watch all the movies, and this one was really good. Liked it a lot. Especially, it was, it was like a creepy movie about being a cult leader and everything. It was, it was cool. This is a whole new, new thing we're doing. This whole episode is brand new. <laughs> we basically experimented like by having uh, Eric Toms do a bonus episode over the holidays, and the results were fantastic. People actually listened to it a lot, just like they do to our normal episodes. So we were like, oh, well, if people are going to listen to a bonus episode just as excitingly as they're going to listen to our regular episode why don't we just do these bonus bonus episodes every week? So we're just trying this thing. You know, a lot of podcasts do this where they like, you know, bring up old bits from old episodes. We've got like over 400 fucking episodes of the show now. So it's like, you know, and, and we're only basically in the future when we're going forward, you're only going to have access to the last 50 plus the current season. So you're only going to have like 50 plus episodes out of 400 plus soon 500 plus whatever so we figured like all these back episodes are going to be not available to people unless they're on the patreon so we figure this is a good way to like you know kind of preview some of the the old episodes and just kind of share some really great interviews that we've had in the past so liz what do you remember about our conversation with Marco zada like what what do you think people are in for when they listen to this episode i just remember you loved it like i loved it too but i remember you like really loved it and then you would bring it up all the time like afterwards you would be like if malgo was so cool and we would like call her malgo <laughs> maybe via text i don't think i've ever said that out loud what do i remember i remember the fact that she helped produce antichrist which is a very important film for me because i'm one of the very few women who love lars von trier and I just thought it was so cool to talk to her just because of that. And then to boot, she's like an incredibly talented, prolific quality filmmaker. What do you remember? I, I just remember her like sitting in her like little wood house somewhere out in the middle of nowhere talking to us and like just like hearing these stories of her like being at these fancy film festivals and winning these awards and stuff and like just her life as a filmmaker and the fact that like she is just a filmmaker. She doesn't have to do anything else. It was just sort of like this really attractive, you know, exciting glimpse into like what life could be like if uh, I was super duper successful. <laughs> or if I kept doing this for forever and like maybe when I'm retired, like I could have a life that looks similar to like this, you know, like where mm-hmm. I just make movies as a retired person and I don't have to have a day job. I'm just covered through, you know, whatever, like my 401k and my you know, making of films. So I just remember like just how ideal her whole deal seemed to me and like just hearing all her ideas and thoughts behind filmmaking and the process of directing. I was just was so, 
so excited by the conversation and it really did pump me up for for months and months afterwards so guys don't go away after the interview because we're gonna play do a little fun thing where we ask each other like what we would ask now if we could go back in time so without any further bibble babble here is our throwback interview with malgrozada samoska I look at the monitor and I see if there is a truth or not. And sometimes, you know, I'm just saying, don't blink, for example. Look and don't blink. And it's enough, you know. They are don't blinking and there is something in the eyes suddenly, which is like very striking. But before we get into that, the news segment, which I, I don't think we've really come up with a cool title for this yet, but we'll just call it the news. This week, I wanted to talk about this article I saw on IndieWire about uh, the Academy Awards and how they're going to start having to change the way they categorize films or allow films to be a part of the Oscars every year because, you know, we're going to have a bunch of movies that didn't get theatrical releases. And The Other Lamb is a good example. Like, The Other Lamb was going to have a theatrical release, I think, um, at least in, uh, you know, New York and L.A. and maybe some other places. Um, But now, obviously, it's not getting any at all. It's just VOD. Um, so I don't know, like, I, w- I wonder what they're going to do and how they're going to handle it and what the actual, re- you know, decision will be. But what what do you think about this, Liz? Do you think this is about damn time or do you think this yeah. is like... Yeah, I mean, I but the issue is that to qualify for the Oscars in the past, it was an incredibly expensive enterprise. Like the week-long runs in New York and LA, the print ad requirements, like it is an undertaking. So, But I don't think the expense is going to change. I don't think... Remember like when the Oscars expanded to 10 mo- movies and we were like, right. oh, more indies are going to be considered. And then it was just like more <laughs> Marvel movies. Like this yeah, is just going to be... blockbuster after blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think this is going to change the, um, like, the level of filmmaking or it's not going to open up the doors to different filmmakers. It's going to be the same type of films that are going to be considered. But yes, I certainly believe that we should be opening up these requirements. It's insane. Like, we're ugh, so annoying. What What's more interesting to me than, than this whole Oscars thing is just to see, like, what trends are going to stick around after... Uh, COVID-19 calms down, you know, like, are we going to see more and more VOD only releases and not theatricals or like, are we going to see bigger movies going to streaming services faster or is it, or is this really just going to be a thing of just this time, like whatever couple months this is going to be? Right. And didn't Christopher Nolan pen some sort of letter encouraging people to pick back up to going back to the movies when we're allowed yeah. to? I mean, yeah, I think there's did. that genuine fear that um, that's going to disappear. I think a lot is to be tested because we're, you know, I work in a field that's in community screenings and we're workshopping virtual screenings and virtual events right now. And it's like we're trying to find out do people have the appetite for a virtual event? Is their attention span going to be the same staring at a computer and engaging worth like versus being in a community center and in a Q and a with a filmmaker. So I also, I honestly think like we're going to find out in a few weeks if there is demand for virtual convening. And if there's not, then we still have it in our, 
cold, dark hearts to get together <laughs> in person to go to the theater, which I hope we do. You know, the I guess the ultimate knee-jerk reaction is like, oh, consumers are going to get used to this. Like, if these things are, are to happen more and more, like, will the consumer just get used to it and expect it going forward? And I would say, like, as someone who goes to the movie theater and loves the movie theater, like, this isn't changing that I love movie theaters. <laughs> like, it's not like, oh, COVID-19, yeah. now I hate movie theaters. No, I still love movie theaters, and I'm going to be <laughs> racing back to the movie theater as soon as this is over. And I feel like a lot of people are going to be just like me, like just like waiting for the moment that they can get back to their local theater to, to see the next big movie or small movie or whatever. I don't know, though. I mean, like, uh, we've been talking about this at work as well. It's like as soon as the containment or the self, you know, quarantine or whatever, sheltering at home, whatever we're calling it, as soon as, as, soon as that's over, are we going to be jumping back in or are we going to be like really still tentative to be in public spaces? Like there's going to be a permanent impact on us after several weeks of sheltering at home. I mean, uh, hopefully <laughs> – I mean, and also there's been there's been people writing pieces about this, like that we've essentially lost another stage of our innocence. Like we no longer feel safe in public because of what the, you know, the trauma of right. all of this happening to us. So like, by the way, I cannot wait for Wonder Woman. So like, I also will be rushing to theaters, <laughs> but I right. do think we will still feel hesitant in public spaces. And I don't know how long that's going to weigh on us yeah i don't know i mean I, I i'm not necessarily like scared to go outside or fearing for anything i just feel like you know the, the responsible thing to do is to stay inside and shelter at home because that's what's going to help us get through this faster but when this is done and i'm told i can go outside anymore or, or go outside again like i'm not going to be like scared to go outside because of you know the time that i was not supposed to go outside i don't know but do you, do you feel that way? Yeah, I'm still yelling at cars driving in the street, being like, where are you going? Like, <laughs> like I hold them accountable well, yeah, well, for driving. Well, when you're not supposed to, but, will you, but you won't feel that way when it's over, will you? I, yeah, no, I hope not. I hope not. But I do notice that, like, when we take, like, a daily walk with our dog and our, our baby, and, like, I do cross the street if I see someone on the same pathway. Like, I'm... I'm still, even though it's only, you know, you should only be six feet away from someone. I'm like, that's not enough. I need to be like 160 feet away from someone. So I still have that paranoia and that anxiety, but I'm a lot more tightly wound than you are, Ulrich. So like, that's just part for the course <laughs> with me. Right, 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 right. Fair enough. Um, okay, well, I think that this has been enough of the news bag segment, but uh, do you want to move on to the mailbag uh, portion of the show? This review is called Making Movies is Actually Hard by D Big Dude on October 19th, 2019. He says, I'm thankful that this show exists. It's a great place to hear people discussing roadblocks that maybe you yourself have gone through, see coming, or maybe even more importantly, don't see coming. The community here is great, and I basically love everything about it. Excited to hear the format keep evolving and to hear updates as Ulrich enters production on his feature, The Alternate. Five-star rating. Thanks, D Big Dude. That's Thanks, awesome. D Big Dude. And uh, I'm actually curious. Like, I now that we've you know I've shot the film, um, which at that time in October I wasn't sure was going to happen, uh, and we have uh, six uh, alternate updates that we have aired on the show. What did you think of them, D Big Dude? Did you like them? Did you hate them? Were they everything you were hoping they were going to be? Uh, let us know. Okay, so our latest uh, review from iTunes is from Alan C. Gardner. 
the title is extremely informed. I feel very cocky reading these. Like, oh, let me just tell people how great we are out loud. Um, Alex, it feels good, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, extremely informative, relatable, and entertaining. Why, thank you, Alan C. Gardner. It's so true. Five stars. Okay, so Alan writes, I'm an actor and independent filmmaker, and listening to this podcast causes me to smile and nod my head in recognition more than any other. Just a dude nodding and grinning in his car and muttering things to himself like, yep, and I get it, and ha. Huh. Well, that's cool. Over and over, like a maniac. So that's fun. Uh, Liz and Ulrich are both sharp, insightful, and have a really great and charming rapport with one another. Aww. Um, Aww. For anyone who's into film or even just good conversation, I'm a huge fan of both. I highly recommend this awesome podcast. I don't think we know this person, so this feels like no, maybe I the don't. first genuine review that I've read. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I feel like there's been lots of genuine reviews Yeah, before. I mean, like D-Big Dude. We don't know who D-Big Dude is. It's we a very good know. point. Yeah, but there have been a few that we've read recently where I didn't know who the person was. So that's true. But, but uh, Alan, what a, Alan, what a mensch. Thank you very much, Alan. It's very sweet. I, we have a, an audience and a building distribution. Is it a bag? I'm in. <laughs> Done. Every week, uh, we're just going to share like a tip about audience building. It's going to be a general tip that people can take and apply to their projects or themselves. And this week is be everywhere, but don't be everywhere. So my tip is that it's important to be able to for people to be able to find you and get in touch with you on social media, email, web presence. But um, people, but you'll go crazy if you feel like you have to populate all these platforms with tons of content constantly. So my advice is to set up social accounts, but don't always feel the need to post on them regularly. So if you're really big on Facebook and you find that to be a really safe place to share and talk, that should be the place where you communicate and build your audience and, and you know, engage with people. But do set up a Twitter account and do set up, you know, a website and an Instagram and just route people to your Facebook page. And, um, you know, retweet a few things every now and then and maybe post less frequently and always mention the fact that, you know, you're you're more likely to be talking to people on Facebook. But acknowledge your foibles in building audiences and route people um, where they can meet you halfway. So you're basically saying that if I have huge anxiety because, like, yes. I'm not a very good Twitterer or uh, Instagrammer, but I do spend time on Facebook, that don't worry about it, like, yeah. you know... But be just, there because you, I, yeah. I'm there. I'm all places. I just ignore them. <laughs> yeah. And that's fine. And like, Is that make, okay? Yeah, I think that's totally fine. And I think you should always route people to your website because your website's the way that actually you can best right. collect email addresses, which are like incredibly valuable. Um, right. So like your Twitter bio should have the website address and then, you know, maybe also the Facebook page because you're more active on Facebook or same thing for Instagram or, you know, route people – so the idea is to meet people where they are, um, but you don't need to stay there. So be everywhere, but don't be everywhere. Right. And and, and oh, here's a question. So like, let, let's say I'm like a nut, right? And I'm like one <laughs> of these people who like, is, I'm like completely addicted to social media and I have the bandwidth and the energy to post on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and whatever else every day. 
Like, is that a bad thing no, if I am that that's person? That's great. That's okay. so great. Okay. Just wanted to check just for people who do do that. Like, you know, is that obnoxious to be like all over everyone all the time? I don't think so. As long as it's different content. Like I wouldn't just repost the same thing you put on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram because that's boring and people will. The whole thing about social media is like avoid being a bot. Don't show your inner roboticness. So if as long as things <laughs> are customized, like on Twitter, if it's a one liner and it's humorous or it's political that's twitter if instagram you know imagery captivating imagery if you're on facebook longer form engaging content so like just make sure you're catering what you're posting to the platform but like no social media moves so fast you don't have to worry about irritating people too much unless you're um, a genuinely irritating human so just don't be (laughs) irritating just don't be irritating. Yeah. Got it. Um, but yeah. And, you know, if you're not a political or funny person, can you still be on Twitter? Because I'm not very funny <laughs> and I'm you're not funny. very political, but uh, I like yeah. to be on Twitter sometimes. That's okay. If I can just like whatever comes to my mind, I can I tweet. I think it's cool. so. I mean, yes. I just say political and humorous because like th- those are the people like comedians and politicians right. are like seem to do really well on Twitter. Right, um, right. But it's more just like short notes, right? It's short thoughts. That's a whole platform right. is capping off your thoughts in certain character number. Um, so yes, you can write whatever you want and just have fun. And like the ultimate piece of advice I always give people is to be a human, like to show Mm. your flaws, be honest and emotional on these platforms because no one wants like a phony robot. No one wants like a nonstop self promoter. Like that's going to be the way that's just not a good way to live your life either. I would say. All right. Well, I think we're we're ready for our next segment. Um, and I don't know if this is what we want to call this, but is it the fil- female filmmaker bag? Is that appropriate? <laughs> no. Or is that just terrible? <laughs> it's the only nod bag segment. Okay. Um, what are we going to call it? What do we want to call it, Liz? I just, I mean, the thing is, it's like, I almost just want to call it the filmmaker corner or like filmmaker okay. sound bites and not even say female filmmaker. Like it should just okay. be filmmaker sound bites and then they just happen to be women. Like I'm just targeting okay. women when I bring them in. That sounds good. Uh, so should we do a new intro to this or should we keep all this? I think we keep all it. And then next keep time okay. we do, here's sound bites from filmmakers. Here's a filmmaker soundbite bag. bag. <laughs> <laughs> okay, done. <laughs> So we have this new segment where we ask female filmmakers, or just filmmakers, their responses to fairly open-ended prompts. Last week we chatted about COVID-19, and this week I asked two filmmakers about the times they felt particularly powerful on set. I hope you enjoy. My name is Shelley Ulrich. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and producer, mostly indie and commercial work. The direct impact the virus has had on me as an artist, many ways in the last couple weeks, actually. I'm in a feature film that had its theatrical release the weekend of Friday, March 13th. So obviously the timing was a pretty devastating blow. Also, I was working crew on a friend's indie film and we were going to film the Seed and Spark teaser Tuesday, March 17th and Wednesday the 18th. And of course, everything had to be canceled. I started a filmmaking 101 class learning about lighting and lenses. Basically, the Cliff's Notes condensed version of film school all in 18 weeks, only because it's all I could afford when it comes to film school. 
and a month into class, and now we are on an indefinite hiatus. Also, there was a short film I worked on, and it got accepted to the Phoenix Film Festival. Plus, I also volunteer at the festival, presenting films and hosting Q&As. It's not just about being paid, it's about becoming known, especially in our smaller market. How I have felt empowered on set. <laughs> well, this one's a little tricky. A film I did a few years back, I'm very proud of, called Dark Dignity. It was a female-dominant cast and crew. I knew in the beginning the writer had me in mind for one of the leads, and then I became pregnant during pre-production, and I was afraid to tell anyone fear of being cut from the role to even being inadvertently blacklisted because, I mean, honestly, who writes roles of currently pregnant women? <laughs> I cried when I told her I was pregnant and that I understood if she recast the role, but they still kept me on. I was seven months pregnant and we were shooting in the desert of Arizona. In the script, there were direct lines about celibacy, so we had to do everything we could to hide my growing belly, and they were really great about everything. Unbeknownst to me, though, there were safety meetings about me specifically, which at first I was sort of raw about. I mean, I was pregnant. I wasn't made of glass. I didn't consider myself fragile, nor did I think my safety was above anyone else's. But after chewing it over, I realized that this was the first time I had seen extensive safety measures being taken to make sure everyone involved with this production was safe. And it's a huge release because, because far too often, safety takes the back seat. So it was incredibly reassuring to see my fellow filmmakers know better and also do better. Seeing someone take my safety seriously, it reinforces that bond between the filmmakers and their cast and crew. And because of that, I would absolutely work with these filmmakers again. Hi, my name is Miriam Olkin and I work in film and television in Massachusetts and I'm also an independent AD for student films and short films. Uh, the way that the coronavirus has impacted me as an artist, the movie we were working on was shut down for four weeks so, um, so I've been at home just kind of enjoying some time off and keeping busy and uh, all the assistant directing I was doing for short films and student films, um, the students had to go home so this is a thesis film so we can't we can't ID that stuff right now. And the short short films, uh, we got one done almost a day before everyone went in lockdown. So that was pretty satisfying to get that done. Um, second, when have I felt um, powerful or respected on set? Um, I was working on a second unit for a feature here in Massachusetts. And I remember it was um, very cold and it was by the sunlight for how much shooting we were going to get done. And someone was yelling or something over the walkie about a tent, like a, one of those fold-up tents sticking out, and how this is a period piece, you know, that can't have that. And just yelling like, somebody get it out of the shot. And I realized that it wasn't my lockup, but I was close enough. So I safely sprinted across a long field and found the tent and pushed it out of the way and you know, just took care of the tent as best I could. And then uh, we got the shot and I went back to my lockup and everything was fine. And hours later, just as the sun was about to go down and the second unit director was done for the day and they were about to hop on a plane somewhere else, they found myself and a couple other PAs and they just, they shook our hand and he looked, you know, myself and the other people right in the eye and just said, thank you. Thank you for what you did today. And it was kind of this realization, wow, this person knows it's tough to be a PA, we're freezing our toes off and we're we're working really hard and and it was just really it was really awesome and it was wonderful to work with those people and 
it felt validating and I just felt lots of respect. Sidebar really quick. Is it per actor or actress? Like, what are we doing here? Are we calling uh, w- women who are actors ac- actresses or are we calling them actors? What's, what's, what's the deal? Because I always thought that it's better to be like, you know, they're, we're, they're all actors, right? Like male or female. But then all the time, like, I, I think almost every time when a, like an, an actor uh, who's a woman introduces themselves, they refer to, them, to themselves as an actress. You just used it just now. Like, what's the proper thing here, Liz? I I tend to use like gender what is it like um like I say guys when I'm talking to a group of women so I'm like the last okay. person to advise on gender appropriate I, I use guys for men and women together like if it's like two men and a woman I'll just say guys or yeah. vice versa whatever you know but I prefer um, actor I just think like you don't say doctress you say doctor right you know right but Me too. Um, but if they say actress then you say actress. Oh, okay. So you take the lead from the person. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. But it's not going to be offensive to anyone. Oh God. I hope it's not offensive to anyone. I don't know. I will. I'm not sure. I don't know if it's offensive or not. I thought that that was like where we're headed. Like, you know, we're all, you know, everyone's an actor, you know, um, there, there just, there are men actors, women actors, uh, you know, whatever, but actresses are a thing of the past of the old days of filmmaking. That's what I was sort of thinking. But, uh, I want to hear from people like this is a good, uh, you know, mailbag situation. Like if you guys have thoughts on this, like is it appropriate actor, actress, or is it only actor? If you're an actor who is a woman, what do you think? Like, would you rather be referred to as an actor or an actress? Tell us, let us know. We could do a poll. Yes. Yeah. I would love a poll. That'd be amazing. Um, all right. Well, speaking of, I don't know if polls really uh, goes well with this, but uh, we do have a Patreon page. It also starts with a P. Um, you can go to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast uh, to join us on Patreon. We've been losing pa- patrons uh, like wildfire, uh, which makes sense because of all this craziness, you know, uh, f- like cash is, uh, you know, not really easy to come by these days with everyone having to tighten, tightening their belts at all. So I understand. But if you do have a dollar and you want to like help our show stay alive, uh, you know, this is a, a thing you could do. You could give us a buck. I was about to say, I don't think we're losing Patreon patrons completely. They're just reducing their monthly uh, contributions. So, I mean, we're we every dollar counts for us is what I wanted to say. Like, we're grateful for anything. So, just thank you. Yeah. And I'm not ungrateful. I'm not angry that, we're, that <laughs> people are dropping. No, I totally understand. It's totally cool. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, I just feel like I get it. Like, I'm anyone who has gone lower amount or dropped off completely. I I get it. I'm not, no no hard feelings. But I'm just saying, you know, a dollar goes a long way. So if you have a dollar, that would be amazing. And uh, if you don't have a dollar and you want to do another nice thing for us, you could also just leave us an iTunes review like we got uh, from Alan C. Gardner earlier today. That's another way to show love. Um, And it doesn't have to be a full written review. If you don't like writing and you don't like words, you could just give a rating. You know, there's uh, plenty of those to to be given out, too. So either way, that would help us a lot. Um, Liz, anything else you want people to do or go or follow or shout out or whatever while we're here? No, I just wanted to acknowledge that, like, you know that moment in Turn of the Screw where, like, the doorknob opens and there's, like, a ghost? 
that just happens to me every day because my son is constantly trying to get in the door <laughs> and he's Aww. just coming. There's just like this phantom doorknob moving. And That's sweet. So he's in here now. So now we're never going to get anything else done. Hi, Colin. Hi, Colin. Do you want to? <laughs> here's the microphone. Can you say anything? He's walking towards it and I think he's going to eat it. Oh, yeah. He's just trying to take it. Um, it's not that exciting when you can't see the child. Um, no, I have oh, nothing well. to add. Oh, there we go. He's crying. Oh. <laughs> well, with that, I think we should get to our interview with uh, Malgorzata uh, Sumoski, which I think I said that right, but maybe I said it wrong. <laughs> also, but uh, Colin looks like our logo right now. He's a crying oh, baby. Making movies should- is hard. You should take a photo of him and he can be the new logo or maybe a a bonus logo. Yeah. (laughs) We are talking with the accomplished Polish filmmaker Malgorzata Szmowska, whose films have played Sundance, TIFF, Berlin. Uh, She's a two-time Silver Bear winner. Uh, Her latest film, The Other Lamb, just hit um, on VOD because we are in the midst of a crazy pandemic. Um, I just hit on VOD on April 3rd, and we're just, like, thrilled to have her on the show. Yeah, this was a really, really fun conversation. Um, You know, I saw the film uh, right before we interviewed her, and it was really striking and beautiful and amazing and chilling and terrifying all at the same time. Um, But just to talk to her about uh, filmmaking in general and making of the other lamb and then just for a little context like this is her first um you know english speaking film and the first film that she's done with like you know american producers so it was kind of a big difference uh for her and uh you know it was really fun to hear about like how she normally works like in the you know european european art house of uh, filmmaking as she put it um versus american filmmaking and uh yeah, it was really it was really interesting. It, it felt very like like what she was talking about like felt very similar to like on a, on a much bigger scale, of course, to like what I went through on the alternate, you know, with like the time and everything. And so, yeah, it was it was really interesting. I also felt like it was a good awakening for me because I feel like I okay, so I hadn't heard of her before, and I'm like, wow. First of all, I'm a horrible human, and then I'm a horrible female filmmaker because her accolades <laughs> are like a plenty. She is like yeah. like a truly decorated filmmaker. But talking to her made me want to watch every single one of her movies. Like she's so charming, first of all, but also she's a real she's a real artist. Like you could just yeah. hear it come out of her voice. You can, the way she details how she works. Um, so I've just was really inspired and I think she really will fall, follow in the footsteps of Jane Campion and Catherine Bigelow. Like, I think she's going to become, um, an even more well-known figure. Yeah. I mean, apparently she's one of the most well-known filmmakers from Poland, if not the most well-known, um, from Poland at the, like right now, I guess, Contemporary filmmakers, I should say. Right, we're um, just all ignorant Americans who don't yeah, totally. know her. But she's <laughs> she is like a famous filmmaker. This is like one of the best uh, interviews I think we've ever done on the show in 250 plus episodes. And yeah. I'm just really excited. One of the, the things we're trying to do on the show now is just to get like a, a rapid fire 
uh, answer of like information about the film before we start really getting into the questions. So, and I just saw the film yesterday. Uh, congratulations, it's awesome. I loved it. Big fan. Thank you. Um, it was chilling and beautiful at the same time, which uh, is hard to do. How many days did you shoot uh, on the other lamb? Twenty-five. Can you say what the rough budget was, like a rough scale? Three million dollars. How long did you work on it from you know it being brought to you and to the movie coming out? Uh, approximately two years. And then how many? Uh, how big was the crew? The crew was like I think it was like forty-five people. And then out of all your films you've made, how difficult was this one in comparison? It was one of the most difficult challenge, total challenge. Well, let's jump off there. Yeah, why we want to hear? First of all, you know, my first uh, independent American film in English. Uh, produce, producer behind you, even nice producer, but still producer, <laughs> you know. It's for, 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 for an European art house director, it's very rare. <laughs> then, uh, very short time of preparation, only four weeks, plus uh, only 25 shooting days. Then, usually in Europe, we are shooting a 10 days longer, uh, then to me it was a little bit like to do again my first film, you know, <laughs> it was like, my God, you have three million dollars, you have to do this and this very fast, Very, we have to be precise and we, we didn't have any over hours, like we have to be, we have to always like finish uh, the shooting on time and then it was like like very difficult and plus the weather it was totally cold and all the time outside and raining and hours standing in this freezing chilling wind in ireland then for many reasons it was like really one of the most like maybe even the most difficult film was this budget smaller than you're normally used to working with as well comparing usually the budget of of films i'm doing it's like two it's it's like let's say one million and a half uh, euro right which is like okay. The problem is that uh, three million dollars. It's a it's a very little but it's a very little budget for that kind of film. And in Europe, when we are doing a film, uh, it's a different money. You know, it's a, that it's, it you can't compare. Yes, it was like a like a lower budget to me than usually. If it's not lower budget. <laughs> So in, in in what way is it different? Like you're you're talking a lot about the difference between working with an American producer and like on a European film. Can you talk to us about like what it's normally like for you working on a movie? Normally for me, it was like I made like eight feature films before. Uh, most of them, all of them in Europe, one in Paris, in France with Juliette Binoche. And um, it's an art house cinema niche, which means that you are having not uh, equity money, your money, it's not private money. You are taking the money from the government, from the government and from the public television and etc. Then it's kind of not easy to get the budget together. It's take, it takes some time. Sometimes it's like one year, one year and a half, or sometimes even two years. Uh, because it's like very, it's so many rules, it's very strict. 
uh, to get that government money. But then uh, when you have this money, uh, everything is like kind of in your hands a little bit. For example, I used to be also a producer on my films. I was uh, hiring uh, a kind of line producer, or we, we call it maybe executive producer, and they did a kind of uh, paperwork, I would say, uh, for me, and also they were organizing uh, a people and said, but it was always, each thing was like my decision because I was the lead producer, the lead director. It's very often like this uh, on uh, art house uh, cinema in Europe. If you have a like festival established director and I, I won Locarno, I won Berlinale, then I was exactly that kind of, um, that kind of type of the director that actually I, I'm taking all decisions by myself, right? Then, it's a big difference because when they gave me the film, it was like not my script, first of all, even I really like it. Then uh, I have to talk each day with the producer about what I'm doing. If I'm changing something in the script, I have to like ask uh, for the permission to do it, right? Or at least I have to right. explain <laughs> what I'm doing this, right? Same with cast. Each element of the film you have to discuss with the producer. To me, it's a new situation, but not only to me, all of my friends, you know, colleagues, uh, European uh, directors, they, they, they are always like um, trying to find themselves in, in that system, which is a very different system than European system, right? But on the other hand, to me, after all my outdoor feature European films, etc., it was a brilliant experience because I kind of have to, you know, put myself together. I, I had to like explain exactly what I'm doing, which puts me in the position that I had to be very precise, react very fast. And um, it was challenged, but in a good sense that I, 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 I can't complain. It was an experience and I think I'm totally ready to jump again in that kind of environment. Do you feel that kind of um, management or accountability made the film better? Or do you feel like it slowed you, you down to have to, you know, explain yourself each day when you're making adjustments and changes? It gets everything a little bit, uh, probably a little bit slower. But uh, if you have a good and experienced producer like I had, which is David Lancaster, who did Whiplash, uh, he understands the situation that it's not takes an hour or it doesn't take uh, even uh, an hour because we don't have that time. It's going on much faster, you know, it's like a very fast communication. Uh, but so as far it's an equity money on the film, I kind of understand the attitude, right? It's a private money, partly, then the uh, people want to know uh, for what they are paying. Then uh, I, I understand the situation. I'm, I can answer you that question. If it's the other lamp, it's not my script, it's a genre film. It's okay. I think it's, it, it works, you know. Uh, but if it's, for example, my own script and I want to do my outdoor, very intimate, intimate film, uh, and then there is an American system of production and producer who is standing on their head and saying, you tell me, explain me, then probably it's against the film. 
then I think it really depends on the project. I think that makes perfect sense. Also, I just want to say you're really cool and everything you're saying is really resonating with me and exciting to me. Um, I wanted to hear how the project came to you originally and if that pathway was different for you this time than in the past and why you jumped on board. Yes, it's interesting because, you know, before I really, since I won Berlinale uh, with Best Director Award, which is, was 2015, uh, I started to receive many offers, uh, English-speaking offers, from independent U.S. market. Uh, and then I'm telling you that I passed on all of them because I didn't find the scripts interesting and I didn't find the stories interesting and even the characters interesting. And I was saying, it's not for me. I don't want to do it. Then I met David Lancaster 5 a.m. at Film Festival in the bar. Yes, wow. <laughs> and he, and I mean, probably we were a little bit smashed, I must tell you. And then he said to, he asked me if I know a very good Polish cinematographer. And I said, of course, we have only good cinematographer in Poland. Most of them works in Hollywood, man. <laughs> and then, you know, I contact him with my cinematographer. And then how David watched all my work, because we were sharing, we have the, we, are, we made, did our films together with my cinematographer. And then David, he called me and he said, I love your work girl from the bar <laughs> I'm gonna send you a script and I said yeah okay great and I didn't have any expectations because I was probably it's gonna be same story again like uh, yeah I mean script I don't feel attached at all or something like this but yes I was attached and I said I like it I mean on card only female uh, a, a journey of a young girl teenager becoming a woman sexuality uh, all things I really like and I feel like personal attached and etc then I said to them of course let's do it and then the process was very long you know because we were waiting and waiting for film maybe very long not very long but to me i'm in impatient you can hear that <laughs> i was waiting nine <laughs> months uh to start to shoot the movie then i i call it very long pregnancy you know because <laughs> they they told me okay we're gonna shoot the next month and then it like took finally nine months to, sh uh, to, to to start shooting from that point that I was waiting, waiting and waiting. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm very, I'm very satisfied with, with the whole experience. But after, right after I jumped to my own outdoor film, Polish German film, uh, my, my script, and I felt very strong how much it's a two different words. But I kind of really like probably what I'm gonna dream of to jump between these two words, you know, to do my own film in Europe and then to do an English speaking because I start to really enjoy the, the, the an American market too. I, I think it's fun. I like it. This, you know, you said that you got a lot of offers uh, after you won uh, the award in, in 2015. Like, had you ever thought about making a movie in English before then? Or was that the first time that idea was introduced to you? I never, I never thought, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's not um, common for the, for the young, I'm not young anymore, but I was young at that time. Uh, it's not very common for the young uh, filmmakers, I think maybe nowadays more, but in my generation, no one think about this, you know, 
Now probably no. Now everyone wants to do film in English, but uh, in my generation, no one. We, you know, I grew up in communism. I, I I never thought about something like this. You know, then when the first offers, my dream was to go to Cannes and won Golden Palm. You know, or I don't know, go something <laughs> like this. Then I I would never dream about this. Never, never. But then when it starts to happen, happening, and finally I did the other lamp. Now I I have a different approach. I now I'm much more open to that, and now I I think it might be something very cool to try. You talked about the weather being a big challenge in making oh, the yes. film and the new, and the new style and everything. Was there any challenge in directing in another language that's not your native language, or was that not a problem? To me, it's not a problem. You know, I directed film in French with Juliette Binoche, and I don't speak French. <laughs> I'm well, well. sorry. Désolé, désolé. No, I, I speak now. I understand some words in French, but no, it's not a big problem. I think it might be a problem if if it's a film where there is a lot of dialogue. If if it's a film which is based on the dialogue, you know what I'm saying. For example, on jokes, teasing, and etc then it might be more complicated. Then I probably have to spend a lot of time to learn um, very precise the lines. You know what I mean? Uh, and what they are mean. But in that uh, scenario, not really. No, no. Because, you know, I understand everything and I can I can share my thoughts. I'm, I'm also like very fast with the actors. I'm not saying like, I'm not explaining the psychological background for hours. I'm much more Polish girl from Poland. I'm very direct. Then I'm saying this and this. Now you are jealous. Now you are bad. Now you are good. I don't like it. I like it. They they are kind of very confused, the actors, I must say, at the beginning. (laughs) Like, what? What are you saying? Because I I don't like it. I don't like it. (laughs) They are like kind of shocked because probably they don't used to work that way. But I'm saying, sorry, I'm from Poland. I don't like it. (laughs) Let's do it again. So you're just very direct with your actors about right. if you like the performance or not. Wow, that's awesome. Yes, totally direct because it's also I, I don't want to waste time, you know. Then, uh, for example, Rafi Cassidy, she, she's a girl from Manchester, very cool and young. And she loves she loved it. She was like, OK, I love it. You are not talking too much. You are not saying bullshit. We are just going straight <laughs> to the point. Amazing. <laughs> wow, that's great. Uh, she was fantastic, by the way, the, the movie. I mean, really great. She's amazing. I just feel like so often as directors, we're told to use metaphors and analogies and we're not allowed to tell actors exactly what we want to see. Um, and it sounds like you're, you're attributing a lot of this to your Polish background. But did you try the other way around? Did you try being vague and descriptive at any point in your career? Mm-hmm. Maybe I tried, but it didn't work. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I remember with Juliette Binoche, it was like this, you know, because Juliette, she she really wanted to work with me. And even she called me, she found me, etc., etc., because she's famous for finding uh, young talents, you know. And then we start to, you know, we, we we came to the set and it was like very difficult psychological scene. And she, she present something and I was shocked because it was like to me, it was terrible. And then I said, oh, my God, it's terrible or something like this. And, you know, she looked at me 
like she was completely shocked and then she starts to laugh and she was laughing and laughing laughing and laughing and then <laughs> how we kind of you know became a real friends and from that moment everything was so easy you know because to her it was so, she knew that she 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 overacted totally because she wanted to overact it in the first take <laughs> and then oh. to to get down step by step and i was so honest like you know like only polish girl on your eastern european girl can be saying like oh my god it's terrible i don't like it <laughs> then <laughs> then you know and then she starts to laugh and we found our own way to to and then i was i mean i was trying before to be kind of weak etc but you know it didn't work that then i did this thing with terrible and that's the end of me being very kind. <laughs> so this is kind of going backwards a little bit, but I'm just curious, like in your process, do you do a lot of rehearsals with your actors or do you do you talk to them beforehand or is it all kind of just like happens on set when you arrive? Most of the time on set, but of course I'm trying to do some. Uh, first, we are talking. I'm trying to explain. Of course, there's like one, at least one conversation when I'm trying to explain my point of, my point of view on the character, uh, then we are doing some rehearsals, but I don't, I'm not a fan of, of over rehearsing because then I think you are losing the kind of uh, freshness, etc. They are losing actors and they start to be like a mechanical that I'm trying more to do it on the ground, on the set um, to get what I want with my uh, method, which are like probably not very typical for, for many directors because I'm really like, I look at the monitor and I see if there is a truth or not. And sometimes, you know, I'm just saying, don't blink, for example. Look and don't blink. And it's enough, you know? They are don't blinking and there is something in the eyes suddenly, which is like very striking. But, you know, I, I'm not explaining why don't blink. Then sometimes it's like a problem for some actors at the beginning that they they, they, they are expecting that explanation, what is behind don't blink. And actually there's nothing behind because I just know that the eyes looks better if they are not blinking. <laughs> then it's like, a, some, to, to me, sometimes it's very technical, you know, how to how to work with actor and but I'm very good with working with actors and you know then step by step they they are they are they learn me they learn to work with me and I think at the end they are always appreciate what they see on the screen so this film was like you said almost entirely outside um what advice would you have to filmmakers who are going into making a film that's going to be shot almost entirely um outside uh, do a lot of exercise. The, the, the physical uh, condition uh, is very important when you are a director, I think so, really. Uh, do a lot of exercise. Uh, of course, uh, you can drink some alcohol too, why not? <laughs> to relax. No, I'm teasing a little bit. But um, yeah, I think it's about uh, being very strong, you know? Like to be outside for 12 hours when it's very cold, you have to have a, a strong uh, organism, I would say, strong body. Well, I wanted to jump in. I know this is slightly off topic, but Antichrist is one of my favorite movies. And when I saw that you helped produce that, I just I couldn't help myself. Um, can you talk a little bit about controversial subject matter and, and just your desire for the reception of what you put out into the world? Um, 
you know, with this film, with, with Antichrist, with any of the other films, how do you want the films to be received? You know, I mean, Antichrist is also one of my favorite films. Then uh, we are on the same page, even if it's very <laughs> difficult film, difficult film. And I think so many people, they just can't take it. No, the, there is a some kind yeah. of problem. Yeah. But I think that's what makes this film very unique, very exceptional. What I it's hard to say, but I mean the dark part of our nature, um, also the sexuality of our nature, and the, in the uh, in the dark side, not only in the light side. It's very very interesting, and uh, sometimes I think that we are too afraid to to the dark side of us, and probably those films like Antichrist and maybe some moments in the other lamp, uh, they are just lead us to to this um, dimension. Uh, it's also a, a part of us. It's also part of our life. Wow. I love that. Thank you. What's the first film you ever made? And now, after all these years, how do you feel about it now? This film is Happy Man. I was 25 years old. When I see this film now, I'm asking myself why there is only unhappy people on the screen, which is very boring. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yes, uh, maybe I would like to be the first female director who, who what, who, who's going to do something, take some, I don't know, Oscars or Golden Palms <laughs> or second director, <laughs> because, you know, it was only Jane Campion who won Golden Palm and only Catherine Bigelow who won Oscar for the best film. Yeah, I want to be the second one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Amazing. I love it. It's going to happen. I hope so. If you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Maybe, maybe for that first film. Oh my God! Uh, don't be so serious. Is making movies hard? Very, very, very hard. <laughs> nice. But then, and then, why do you do it if it's so hard? Because I love challenge. I'm, I'm a fighter. I am a fighter. It's for the people who are fighters. The one last question I think I would love to ask is, you know, given all your experience, all the films you've made, what advice do you have to young filmmakers who are just starting out, just going out to make their first film? I mean, uh, don't never give up, never give up and do your film even with the lowest money you have with that. Just try and never postpone, never wait too long. Be, be extremely pushy. Like, yes, I have to do that. That's only one possible way to get there. Amazing. Um, I could ask you questions all day, Malgo, because you have so much great <laughs> advice and things to say, but I, I don't want to keep you because I know you have a lot of other interviews to do. Um, yes. But thank you so much for your time. This has been yeah, great. Thank you. It was pleasure, guys. It was really fun. Thank you so much. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Okay, Liz, if Malgorzada was on the show today, 
What is the one question you would ask her? I always want to ask, like I always want to press further with any European filmmaker, what they would do if they were an American filmmaker who didn't have state support and how they and, and maybe didn't play Sundance or Cannes or Torino or whatever, and how they would go about creatively financing or distributing their work. Like I would probably press her even further to think outside of the European art house model of like these traditional theatrical releases and like whatever it is that I think that she has a history of doing with her work, like fully supported art house features and see what advice she would have for indie creators in America. So that's what I would ask. What about you? I think I'd ask a question about like, like how she picks her projects. Like, like how does she decide that this is a movie she wants to direct or how does she decide like this is a movie that she wants to write? Like what is her process behind making that decision? Cause I feel like that is something that I'm going to struggle with for the rest of my life. And I'm just curious to know like how someone like her makes that decision because I think she'd have a really good answer to that question. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I can kind of picture it. Well, you all listening can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion <laughs> to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Those really help. They really actually do. So please do. Finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. So yeah, I don't know, but Liz, I wanted to try this little thing, you know. Oh no, we're gonna do this after the conversation. Okay, God, I'm like all over the goddamn place. So guys, don't go away after the interview. 